0: Now John baptized him water, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him in the form of a dove. And when John speaks of that in John the Baptist, when he speaks of that in the Gospel of John, he said that he was told beforehand upon whom he saw the Spirit descending and remaining, the same as he which shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That word remaining caught my attention recently. Upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descending. We often think about the Spirit descending in the form of a dove when he was baptized. But remaining made me think of in that old dispensation, before the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, what we call the Old Testament days. The Spirit of God came upon many men, many different men. The Spirit of God came on, and they did many tremendous and marvelous things. But when our Lord was baptized, the Spirit of God came upon him and remained. You know, when he went into the synagogue in Nazareth, first time after he'd been baptized by John, and went back there to Nazareth where he'd been raised. He found that place in the scroll in the prophecy of Isaiah where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And when our Lord was baptized there by John in Jordan, we are also told that a voice from heaven was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But it's not the Lord's baptism in water that we're going to think about tonight. But he spoke about another baptism. And he spoke about it in this 12th chapter of Luke. And not only about a baptism, but about sending fire and not peace upon the earth. Let's read verses 49 through 53. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I, if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straitened till it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, let's look at these three things tonight. First of all, his baptism. What was this baptism that he was to still be baptized with? Well, it has to be his sufferings. There's no question about that. It has to be his sufferings. And he uses this word baptism, in my opinion, to show the greatness of his sufferings. Just like John the Baptist had laid him or plunged his body down in that water of Jordan, and he was covered over with that water, and he remained under that water for a short time, and then he was raised up out of the water, never to have that repeated again. So the Lord Jesus Christ would be plunged into his sufferings, remain under them for a short time, and then be raised up from them, never to be returned to suffer again. Now, how did he come to have this baptism to be baptized with? Let me say, Three things. First of all, it was the Father's will. It was the Father's will. This is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost Him being delivered by the determinate counsel, that is the will of God, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. How did he come to have this baptism with which he was going to be baptized? Because it was the Father's will. God determined to save a multitude of sinners. Now, we don't know why, other than for his own glory. And that's reason enough, isn't it? In fact, nothing else would be worthy of God. Nothing other than his own glory. But he determined to save a multitude of sinners from Adam's fallen race. And since all of us are members of Adam's fallen race, it behooves us to pay attention and have some interest and, and try at least to listen and, and enter into this as to why it was the Father's will for him to suffer. Their sins would be atoned for. These that God determined to save, Our sins would be atoned for by the shedding of his blood. God's justice would be satisfied by his sufferings. You know, when they came to arrest him in the garden that evening, Peter, impetuous like he was, he pulled out out his sword and he cut off that servant's ear. And the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to Peter and said, Put up thy sword. And he went on to say the cup which my Father hath given me. Who gave him this cup of suffering? His Father. Why did he have this baptism to be baptized with, which was his sufferings? Because, first of all, it was the Father's will. It was the Father's will that he suffer, and that he atone for the sins of his people. Secondly, it was his agreement. It was his agreement. He agreed to lay down his life for those given to him by the Father. And notice here in our text tonight, he said, And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Now, if you have a marginal reading, that word "straitened" is pained. How am I pained till it be accomplished? Now, some say that this is a word picture like a woman who is to have a baby. Now, we've had several young ladies in our church recently have babies and their first babies, and I remember when we had our first child, and I remember my daughters when they had their first children, and, and I can only imagine. And one of the young ladies told me recently before it was time for her baby to be born, she said, I'm, I'm apprehensive. She said, I'm ready for it to be, be over but she said, I'm apprehensive. She said, I, I've heard some things from others, and I know there's going to be pain associated with it. And I can imagine uh, what it must be for a woman to be expecting that first child and knowing that there's going to be a great deal of pain involved, and, and yet you're ready for it to be over. That's what our Lord is saying here. The time draws near. For him to be baptized with this baptism of suffering. And our Lord knew that he would be charged with the sins of his people. That God would make to meet upon him the iniquities of us all, as Isaiah said. That God would make him to be sin. God would charge him with sin. He would experience something that he had never experienced before and he would never experience again. And that is, in paying our sin debt, he would be separated from the Father. Now, I'm not able to explain that, and I don't think any other man is. Was it Martin Luther who one time said, God forsaking God? You know, Who, who can enter into that? But I know it was real. I know his sufferings were real. And I know there was a real forsaking that he experienced. And our Lord knew that was coming. And it was coming because he would be made to be sin. The sins of his people would be charged unto him. And when that happened, the fire of God's wrath would be turned loose upon him. And that sort of divine justice would never be satisfied until it was plunged Into the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew he was going to be forsaken of God. And he had to dread that. But then again we read in Hebrews chapter 12. Who for the joy set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. So why? Did he have this baptism to be baptized with? First of all, because it was God's will. And secondly, because he agreed to it. He laid down his life for his sheep. No man taketh it from me, he said. He willingly, in that covenant of grace that was struck and made before the foundation of the world, when God gave him his children, he accepted us. God gave his people, his elect, into his hand for him to be their surety, and he received us. He he accepted us, and he accepted to be our surety. You know that word surety? I, I may have said this before, but if I have, it's been a long time because I know I haven't preached here in a year. <laughs> Preaching in our congregation, I forget sometimes. It may have just been last week. But you know... I think it was uh, John Bunyan, reading him several years ago, and he used that word undertaker. Now, we don't even use that concerning a funeral man anymore. <laughs> that was a word we used when I was a kid, the undertaker. But you know, that's what Christ became. Our charity, our undertaker. And if that word ever should apply to anyone, it applies to him. Because an undertaker, he takes that body after the spirit is left and he undertakes for that body to to plant it in the ground to do for that body what that body cannot do for itself and that's what Christ agreed to do to come into this world as our surety and to do for us for his people for his elect for those whom he represented to do for us what we sure cannot do for ourselves he undertook for us He agreed to do that. He willingly laid down his life for his people. And number three, it is the only way of forgiveness. It's the only way of forgiveness. There's only one Savior. There's only one gospel. One gospel of God, that is. One way of forgiveness. And when a person is baptized in water, he remains just a short time under the water. And then he's raised, never to be baptized again. That's not something that that needs to be repeated. When we confess the Lord in baptism, it's a one-time ordinance that we are to fulfill. I want you to look at these words in, in Hebrews chapter 9 concerning our Savior. Hebrews Chapter 9. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? And that word accomplished, that's an interesting word, isn't it? Till it be accomplished. You remember in Luke's account of the transfiguration. He said that, that uh, Moses and Elijah appeared there with our Lord on that mountain. And they spoke of his. Decease, and the word decease is the word exodus, His exodus which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Our Lord, he accomplished all that the Father gave him to do. All the work that the Father gave him to do, he accomplished when he died. You know, when he prayed in John 17, before he went to the cross, he said, Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He finished that work. He was baptized with that baptism. And it's never going to be repeated again. Never again. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here in Hebrews uh, 9, beginning in verse 22. If you notice in the middle part of the verse, he said, Without shedding of blood is no remission. There is no remission without the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of his blood. It wasn't the blood of those animals, the shedding of the blood of those animals that could take away sin. They, they served and their blood served to picture and to be a shadow of his blood and his death and his sacrifice, but the blood of those animals could never take away a sin. What one, the prophets prophet say, if I give the firstborn, if I give my firstborn, it cannot atone for my sins. If you were to give your firstborn child, offer that child up on a sacrifice. As the Israelites, they actually did that. Burned their children to that god Moloch, that idol god. And, but that could not atone for sin. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens the patterns being that tabernacle and the priesthood and all of those offerings, animal offerings, should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now notice, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. for Then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once, I like that word once, don't you? Both here and in Hebrews 10. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He came the first time in relation to sin, in relation to put away the sins of his people. But when he comes again, it is without sin. He's coming to receive his people. So, this baptism, he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, a baptism of suffering. And it's interesting when you read the various commentaries, commentators, even those who believed in sprinkling, that practiced sprinkling, uh, none of them think that this means he was sprinkled with suffering. They all speak about him being immersed. In his sufferings. That word sprinkling. That just won't get the job done. When you talk about the sufferings of Christ. He was immersed. In sufferings. The second thing. This. What is this fire. That Christ came to send on the earth. I'm come to send fire. On the earth. Well. I know this. That in. The prophecy of Jeremiah, God one time compared his word to both a hammer and fire. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he has sent out men to preach the gospel. He calls men and puts men into the ministry, and he sends men out to preach the gospel. And the gospel... He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel, the word, may be this fire. I am come to send fire upon the earth. And out of Zion, the scripture said, the rod, his rod, the law of the Lord would go. And you know this about fire, two things about fire. It gives light, first of all. And when the gospel comes, when the gospel comes to a person, it gives light. I mean, uh, Zacchaeus, or Zacharias rather, the father of John the Baptist, when he was prophesying concerning his son and what he would accomplish, one of the things he said is that he would give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And that's a, that's a picture of all of us by nature. When we come into this world, we're sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. And many, many people come into this world in darkness and in the shadow of death, and they go through this world in darkness and in the shadow of death, and they pass out of this life in darkness and in the shadow of death. But those to whom the gospel comes, not just in word, Paul, Paul told the Thessalonians, uh, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and demonstration of the Spirit of God. And that's what we cry for, isn't it? That's what we pray for. That's what we long for, that as we stand to preach, and we encourage you who listen to us preach, every one of these preachers here, we would all confess that we can do nothing, nothing. We can't even make a good show in ourselves. And we don't want to make a show. And we are so dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, to anoint our word, to take our word and cause our word like arrows, to strike in the heart of his people. And the first thing it, it does, it gives light. It gives light. And maybe that's all a person can say at first. I once was blind, but now I see. I can't answer all your questions. I can't tell you everything about this one who did this for me, that man in John chapter 9, said, but he said, I can tell you this, once I was blind, but now I see. I've got some light. First of all, I see I have a need. I have a need of a Savior. How many people go through this world, and you talk to them, and, and they don't act like they don't uh, have any need. I mean, they don't express. They have a need. And I'm not all oh, people have a need For money, people have a need for health, people have a need for these things in this world. Yes, if that's what you're talking about, you can get hundreds of people to tell you and hold up their hand or whatever and talk about a need. But I'm talking about a person who comes to realize something of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of himself and realizes he's got to meet that God. He's got to face that God in eternity. It's appointed unto man once to die but after this the judgment I've got a need I've got a need a light comes, the gospel comes and it tells us who he is and how that need has been met and, and then the, another thing about fire, not only does it give light but it gives heat it gives heat I've known people over over the years and I know you have, too. I'm not just talking tonight to hear myself talk, but I've, I've known people that can, I mean, they've got a lot of light. I mean, they can they can split hairs on doctrine. They, they can discuss all kinds of theological things, but they don't have a heat. They're as cold as a, as a sow's nose, I believe they say. Cold. I mean, there's nothing in their heart. There's no love. And, it, and love is manifested. Love is manifested. Just like faith is manifested, love is manifested. And people who, who receive this, this fire not only gives them light, but gives them heat. Remember what our Lord's disciples said when he met with them that day on the road to Emmaus and and then he went on, and they said one to the other, Did not our heart burn within us? Does your heart ever burn within you? Does it? When well, you're in the Word of God or you're hearing these worship services, the gospel's priests and the hymns are sung, and, and your heart just burns. I mean, how do you explain that? I can't explain it, but I know it's real, don't you? I know it's real. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? But it's also true that this fire here, our Lord said, I am come to send fire on the earth. It may well represent hot persecution. Hot persecution that would surely come upon our Lord's disciples. And we read in the book of Acts, it did come and it did come soon. And remember our Lord told the disciples once, he said, you shall be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. And they were baptized with suffering. And, and yet out of that, like you said, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's in heaven and he is in control of all things. He's opening up the seals of that book and all providence. And so as men were persecuted, we read they were scattered Abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word. And I've read this many times. I've not experienced this, but I've read it in church history many times. But the church of the Lord, I'm talking about the real church of the Lord. I'm not talking about this, this uh, umbrella word that's used for all Christianity today. I'm talking about God's people. The church has always grown in times of persecution, in times when there's hot persecution, reading the life of Isaac Watts, and uh, he lived, you, you're familiar with him, he wrote many of the hymns we sing, but he, he was a minister in, in England, and he preached in the late 1600s and early 1700s, but he made this observation when he began to preach, he said, the church houses are empty. And they're empty because the gospel isn't preached. And uh, about that time, George Whitfield was being raised up. And some of those other men began to preach. And, and for, before long, the church buildings could not hold the people. There were so many hundreds and, yea, thousands of people who were attending upon the word preached. But when I read that last week, I thought to myself, how different it is in our day. The church houses today, we just take all the church houses, they're full where the gospel is not being preached. And where the gospel is being preached, for the most part, there's still a little room in most of our buildings. And that's just true. And that's, that's still in God's providence, isn't it? God's, God's will. And you study back through church history, there's been times when there's been great movements of God, and there's been times like the time in which we are living, living in. And that's one reason it's that much more important for us to be faithful and to continue to preach the gospel and to pass this gospel on to the next generation, to those God will raise up. And the third thing our Lord speaks of here is that he would not send peace. You know, Notice he said, I suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay. Now, What does he mean by that? Well, suppose the Lord had said, suppose ye that I am come to make peace with God. Then the answer would have been in the affirmative, wouldn't it? Yes, he did come to make peace. Paul tells us that he made peace through the blood of his cross. That is, he made peace for his people with God. He reconciled us unto God. You say, well, how How did the angel say? And this is what people are saying right now at this time of the year. You know, glory to God in the highest peace on earth, goodwill to men. How is it that? The angel said, Peace on earth. And here he said, I did not come. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. The angel said that the night the Lord Jesus Christ was born upon this earth. In other words, the Prince of Peace, he was come. That was a prophecy. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace came that night so many years ago. Peace on earth, yes. He who made peace by the blood of his cross, he had come. But our Lord said, don't think that I've come to send peace upon the earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, it may mean that Many of his disciples, at least, and those Israelites who were alive at that day, they they were expecting a Savior, a Messiah, rather, who would come and set up an earthly kingdom. And he would sit on that throne and reign from Jerusalem, and there would be worldwide peace. He would rule with a rod of iron. And don't think that I've come to send peace upon the earth. My kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is within you. And he sets up his throne in the heart of his people. And when he does, then there is this division that he speaks about. Sometimes it's in a home, husband and wife. If you are a man here tonight or you are a lady here tonight and your husband is a believer, your wife is a believer, you ought to doubly thank God that God has given you a believing wife or husband. What a, what a rupture there is in a home where one is a believer and the other isn't. And we warn our young people, don't we, don't, don't yoke up with an unbeliever. Don't do that. You're just asking for problems. It's asking for trouble. There's division where, where the gospel comes. In, in Matthew, I believe it's a sword. I've come to send a sword. And it's a two-edged sword that divides and separates And the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the great separator. Isn't he? All people, all mankind are separated by him. We're either in union with him and know him as our Lord and our Savior and are on our way to heaven, or we are lost and on our way to hell. He divides mankind. This gospel, you know, uh, some people can get along with the devil, I guess. It seems like it. Some preachers act like they're afraid of offending anyone, but this gospel offends. If, if people could come to your church and never be offended, either you've got all the elect coming in the door, or you're not preaching this gospel, my friends. And I tell you what, I like people to either get mad or get happy, one or the other. But indifference, that's the thing that kills a preacher, isn't it? Just indifference. I mean, just come and uh, you want to preach uh, preach this, that's okay. You want to preach that, that's okay. You know, I can go over here and I can listen to this man preach and I, I feel satisfied, even though he doesn't preach the gospel. I can be Happy, I can be content here or there. No, the gospel divides; it separates. I pray the Lord would bless these thoughts and words to us tonight. You know, my son. Let me let me close with this. My son t- uh, told me recently they had a man to die at their uh, their company one day. He had ambulance come out there three, di- three times for three different men, and one man died. And he said, "You know it's interesting to see the reaction of people when they hear they're in the office that someone has died." He said, "The first question is, how old was he? And you know, if you tell him his age and it's older than they are, well you can just almost see a little sigh of relief. <laughs> I've got years to go yet. My second question is, did he smoke? Oh, he smoked. I'm secure, you know, I don't smoke. Number three, was he obese? Yeah, he was obese. Well, I'm, I'm safe on that one too, you know. But you know, the truth is, death comes at all ages, doesn't it? And like you said... As death finds us, it leaves us in eternity. And we'll never all be gathered together again like we are tonight. I just trust and pray that God would speak to each one of us and, and cause us to look to Christ again. He was baptized with that baptism of suffering, and it was suffering that he might be just and justifier of those who believe in his son.